This is Rabbi Josh Uter of the Stanton Street Shul. Thank you for downloading this class podcast. These classes are provided free of charge through the generosity of the Stanton Street Shul community and supporters like you. If you do enjoy them, please consider making a donation to our synagogue's building fund on our website's shop donate page at www.stantonstshul.com. Good evening, everyone. It is Wednesday, June 11th, 2014. The topic for tonight's current Jewish questions is reparations, particularly in the United States for slavery and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, what prompted this was an article written by someone named uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, I hope I pronounced his name correctly, uh, that made a lot of waves. And I highly recommend everyone find this online and read it. It is incredibly powerful writing. Um, and I quote through here extensively. So, I mean, I would, but I do it a little out of order. I, I recommend everyone read the article in the original. It prompted a great deal of discussion. Um, now, it's really hard to have, in my opinion, a really, I don't know, put this serious, but it's very hard to have a discussion about race in this country. Um, mostly, you know, people would say, like, well, if, you know, you're not white, you know, you don't really have, can save the position because you don't have the experience. Um, and if you're African American and you go against the status quo, you can be branded an Uncle Tom. And no one wants to be branded a racist in any way, so people often tiptoe around issues. So, let me stipulate here that I am as white as they come, and I am not pretending at all to understand the African-American experience in this country. Okay, What I do have experience in is quoting stuff, particularly Jewish texts, which is what I'm going to do. Now, when issues like this come up, it's really, I don't want to say it's uncommon, but it's almost automatic. Someone will get up and say, Jews should oppose this or Jews should support this. And it happens with things like reparations too. And they'll quote maybe one or two things, hold this up as exemplary of everything Judaism represents, um, to the exclusion of everything else that contradicts that. You've been coming to my classes long enough to know that's not how I operate and things are rarely that simple. So I'll be quoting a lot of sources here uh, that I think are relevant. Some people may say yes, some people may say no. In my opinion, they at least have to be dealt with. Uh, at the end, I'll give somewhat of a, what I think might be a possibility or the thing that makes the most sense to me, but I am by no means poskening this is the Jewish position. And I have no doubt if you read up on this, you will find people that will selectively take these sources, again, pretending that other stuff doesn't exist, in order to best prove their point. Question already, George? And welcome back. Uh-huh. Uh, we just went through the Passover and the Zetius was trying. Yep. And uh, the Jews were going to left Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Took silver and gold yep. and stuff like that. Yep. Is that considered reparations? Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, the, the Jewish model with slavery is a little bit unusual, I mean, compared to a lot of other things, both in terms of how you view Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Actually, um, in Coates' article, he begins by citing um, the laws of the Eved Ivri, that when the, Jew, uh, the Hebrew slave is freed, you don't just you know throw him out, but you actually load him up with stuff, kind of a 
severance. But the entire model is different. Uh, the way Ruf Tendler explained the Evid Ivory was that it isn't like Uncle Tom's Cabin, but rather it's actual rehabilitation. Meaning, there are so many... Here's an example. There are so many uh, requirements for someone to have an Evid Ivory. The Gemara says, Kona Evid, Kona Adon La'atzmo. That if you acquire an Evid Ivory, a Hebrew slave, it is as if you required another master on yourself for all of the things that you need to take care of him. But that's not what we're going to be focusing on. Because, you know, the Jewish model of slavery I don't think is as applicable here. We're going to view it from a matter... Well, let's start off. Corinne, read the first paragraph. Uh, this is also this is from Coates. Uh, again, I'm quoting him out of order. Just know that this appears somewhere in his article. Uh, because it's an online thing, I can't give page numbers. Perhaps no number can fully capture the multi-century plunder of black people in America. Perhaps the number is so large that it can't be imagined, let alone calculated and dispensed. But I believe that wrestling publicly with these questions matters as much as, if not more than, the specific answers that might be produced. An America that asks what what it owes its most vulnerable citizens is improved and humane. An America that looks away is ignoring not just the sins of the past, but the sins of the present and the certain sins of the future. More important than any single check cut to any African-American, the payment of reparations would represent America's maturation out of the childhood myth of its innocence into a wisdom worthy of its founders. So you can see here, like, the entire article is written like this, by the way. I wasn't kidding. Um, so there are two important things that he mentions here in this paragraph. One is the idea of reparation as paying something that's owed to you. Okay? We have a similar idiom for this in Hebrew. So what do you think the root of reparation is? Repair. Exactly. Something is broken or missing that you need to fix. The Hebrew term for this is tashlumen, the root being shalem. You make someone whole again, particularly after you've damaged. What he says to the two things that are important here is, one, what does America owe? Right? And we'll talk a little bit about this later in the class. We're not talking charity. Charity is when you give of your own goodwill. O means someone has a claim against you. This is what someone else deserves and deserves from some, person A is owed from person, uh, owes person B means person B has a claim on person A. Right, that's something very specific, and we'll talk about that in obviously great more detail. And the other factor that he mentions, which we're also going to elaborate on, is ignoring not just the sins of the past, but the sins of the present and the certain sins of the future. For Coates, money is on one hand important, but it's not just money. There's something to be said about wrestling with the guilt and sort of admitting, yeah, even just the fact that you admit that you owe something, for him is something that is signs of maturity in his words. Uh, he elaborates that there is um, apparently a bill that is keeps getting you know quashed uh, to study reparations. And even that doesn't even make it to a vote. And he said, you know, we study just about everything else under the sun, so why don't we study this? But just to even have the conversation is a non-starter. So this here is why he explains why we need to have that conversation for reparations, which we're going to do tonight. Um, I should also, if I didn't say it explicitly, but it makes sense to do it now, I am not in any way, not just poskening halacha, but certainly not poskening American policy. 
I mean, this has nothing to do with what this country should or should not do, but rather looking at this incredibly difficult and serious question using various sources from our Torah. Uh, and like most of the shiurim that we do when we've got very complicated issues, is to narrow it down, because you could take this in so many different directions, uh, is we focus on either sources from the Bible or sources from the Talmud and rabbinic sources. There are a couple of citations to Maimonides here, but that's really not the core. Um, and I'm sure you know you do more research, you'll find lots more opinions on this. Um, so let's you know do that. Uh, so let's summarize here a bit of for what are reparations needed, right? Because if you're going to say that we owe you something, well. What is it? So um, it, this doesn't really make... I'm not going to ask people to read this because we'll just summarize this. So the first is slavery. Uh, there's really no explanation that we need for that. You know, we kidnapped people from their homes in Africa, brought them over in horrific conditions and slave ships, made them work on plantations and other stuff. Really horrible, horrible life in existence, right? So you can say we owe pain and suffering, back wages, all that stuff. Jim Crow laws, uh, just copied here from Wikipedia, that they were uh, racial segregation laws between uh, seven, 1876 and 1965 at the state and the local level. Um, and I quoted here at length uh, about, in detail, it wasn't just pure segregation, as much as systemic economic exploitation, both official and unofficial. Uh, and there's some real horrors, well, not I want to say real horror stories, one particular particular instance, uh, one particular person um, that he writes about his entire story who lived under basically multiple conditions, a guy named Clyde Ross. Um, so here's one example. This was stuff that happened... Um, I think back in the 60s when he's talking about, uh, there was something called a contract sale where African Americans couldn't actually get mortgages. So the men who peddled contracts would sell home at inflated prices, then evict families who could not pay, taking their down payment and their monthly installments as profit. Then they bring in another black family and repeat. Uh, you know, he said that the, um, from the 1930s to 1960s, black people across the country were largely cut out of the legitimate home mortgage market through both me, me, through means both legal and extra legal. Chicago whites employed every measure from restrictive covenants to bombings to keep their neighborhoods sec, uh, segregated. And this policy was it writes here, their efforts were buttressed by the federal government. Uh, and he explains how this system was rigged specifically against the African American population. Um, you had publicly funded uh, or backed up mortgage Mortgages that they were specifically excluded from, which meant they kind of had to stay put. Uh, there was a group that um, sued over this policy, and they lost in 1976. Um, and he says here, if there were any doubts about the mood of the jury, the foreman removed them by saying, when asked about the verdict, that he hoped he, it would help, end quote, the mess Earl Warren made with Brown versus Board of Education and all that nonsense. So this should give you a sense of the mood of the country. All right. Um, 
Right. Uh, other quotes here is, seg- the American real estate industry believed segregation to be a moral principle. Um, and the federal government concurred, saying it was the homeowner's loan corporation, not a private trade association, that pioneered the practice of redlining, selectively granting loans and insisting that property it insured must be covered by restrictive covenant, a clause in the deed forbidding the sale of property to anyone other than whites. Millions of dollars flowed from tax coffers into segregated white neighborhoods. What are tax dollars? They're communal funds. Based on the policies, not of corporations, but those of the federal government, the United States government took federal took tax dollars, the collective funds, used that money to advantage one population at the explicit expense of another. Now, I am assuming here, and to my knowledge, all of this, what he says is true. And in everything that I've read in terms of the commentary, no one has disputed or disproved the facts that Coates brings. I am not nearly the historians that they are. I am going to trust them on face value that this is true, especially because for something this you know, heated, someone would bring up some evidence if it weren't true. So let's assume that it is. Skipping down to the last paragraph, he writes how this type of discrimination continued even to today. So in 2011, Bank of America agreed to pay $355 million to settle charges of discrimination against its countrywide unit. The following year, Wells Fargo Fargo sold a discrimination suit for more than 175 million, um, and it says, but the damage had been done. 2009, half the properties in Baltimore, whose owners had been granted loans by Wells Fargo between 2005-2008, were vacant. 71% of those properties were in predominantly black neighborhoods. So we have both public and private exploitation of the African-American community. Now, when it comes to things like Wells Fargo and the banking crisis, you could also argue that, well, you know, whites kind of got somewhat of a raw deal there, too. Um, but he also and shows other things out. Well, there was, whether or not the African-American community came out worse, he does have evidence that in certain instances, they were specifically targeted as because of their vulnerability, they were a better target for exploitation. So, how would the case for reparations work? Uh, Risa, take this one. This is Coates again from the same argument. Scholars have long discussed methods by which America might make reparations to those on whose labor and exclusion the country was built. In the 1970s, the Yale Law professor Boris Bitger argued in the case for black reparations that a rough price tag for reparations could be determined by multiplying the number of African Americans in the population by the difference in white and black per capita income. That number, $34 billion in 1973, when Victor wrote his book, could be added to a reparations program each year for a decade or two. Today, Charles Ogletree, the Harvard Law professor, argues for something broader, a program of job training in public works that takes racial justice 
as its mission that includes the poor voice. Right. So of the two things here, uh, the proposal by Charles Ogletree isn't, I mean, it, it's a way of like solving an economic problem, but it doesn't address the actual question of reparations. The way that he phrases Boris Bitker's argument is, the price tag for reparations is calculate the difference in white and black per capita income and then pay that out. Uh, Matt Iglesias from Vox.com writes something similar where he tries to do the calculations of what would it take to close the gap in wealth between black and white households? Okay? Now, note that you know, having this, that criteria as your metric for reparations you know, assumes a great deal that we're going to explore. Uh, he actually incidentally puts the number at 1.38 trillion and he explains a few ways of like doing so how. But this is important to keep in mind, right? Based on this logic, the implication is that slavery and discrimination are wholly responsible for the economic discrepancy between blacks and whites. That is a very difficult argument to make, as we're going to see later on, because did it cause damage? Absolutely. Is it the cause for all damage? Much harder to say. Um, but who's responsible for reparations? Mm-hmm. Yeah, George, George, it's a wonderful... So this is what I miss about George. You ask these wonderful questions, which we will get to, I promise you. Um, but that you should know that those, the big questions that we have, or at least in the major discussions, are who pays and who gets it, right? Because do you do it by race? If it's purely by race, what about African-American millionaires, right? Uh, someone used the example, would Oprah get it cut, Right? She clearly doesn't need the money. Who pays for it? Well, well, I I don't understand. It's one point for a trillion, but much better off than I am. I can promise you that. but at any rate, so it says here, uh, you know, money, monetary reparations are generally viewed as an extreme idea, but the reality is that the financial leveling is one of the aspects of racial equality uh, that uh, that it would be e- easiest to fix if the country wanted to. I'm not so sure how easy it is to just, you know, write out, you know, $1.5 trillion of anything, um, unless, of course, you're, you're trying to fund a war. But aside from that... The bankers, uh, yeah, the bailouts. I, I am not saying no, but those are the big. Qu- that's a big difference. I mean, an institution that's that's. Yeah, a, a private institution yeah. that you since find for doing a whole bunch of you know, th- those were not great government policies either, and it, those are usually counter arguments for you know when people complain that well look when healthcare happened right you know the universal healthcare people complain you know you're spending so much government money it's like well the amount of money that you spent to bail out the banks you know could have gone to healthcare so if you're really it, it's for those who are really free market republicans. They should have been opposed to the bailouts as much as anybody else. That was government interventions. But no, whatever. I get that people are inconsistent in this. Right? So let's look at, you know, the, that's at least the framework that we're dealing with. We have an argument that America ought to do something for the African-American population to... It's not out of charity. It's because due to the injustices that we've done, we owe it to them. 
Right, so it's something that is owed, uh, and in, by implication, at least based on Vox and Coates himself, seems to be leaning towards to to close the overall gap in quality of life, standard of living, income inequality between the African American community and everyone else. Pretty big, high-minded, great goal, but are those two really compatible with reparations? So let's start with you know section four here. Certain approaches from the Torah, and let's begin with principles of Jewish justice. Um, Beryl, this is source number six on page six. Principles of Jewish justice: um, seven kinds of punishment come upon the world for seven classes of transgression. The sword comes upon the world because of the delaying of justice and the perverting of justice and because of those that teach Torah and not according to Allah. Now, in theory, all of these could be applicable here, right? Um, justice delayed? Well, if we owe them stuff, oh yeah, justice delayed, justice denied. Perverting of justice? Well, if the court system was corrupt in the 70s, such that African Americans were not on an equal playing field in the court of law, that's going to be corrupt. Right? That, that's corruption. All right? And teaching Torah, uh, not according to halacha, is you know, somewhat unrelated to you. There are you know, countless statements you can find in rabbinic literature and in biblical literature about how great and wonderful justice is as a concept. But the trick is, what is justice in practice? Because it's not only a concept. All right? So, what are some important things that we need to keep in mind here? Uh, George, uh, take the Gemara. Yeah. Would justice in the eyes of the Torah be justice in the Jewish law? Yeah. Justice in American politics. That is very true, which is why I'm only focusing on the Jewish side of things today. Because I know Jewish law a lot better than I know American law. But the reason why I'm doing it here is those who would say that there is an innate Jewish obligation for reparations, is that true based on our own system of moral law? Right? So, you know, I'm not, I would not take this argument and go to the Supreme, uh, go to the Supreme Court or go to Congress like, hey, you really should be posketing out of the Talmud. You know, I'm sure someone out there might do it, but that's not me. They're going to do whatever it is that they do. My issue is more of if you're going to argue from a Jewish religious perspective, know what you're talking about a little bit more. And trust me, it's not like this class is comprehensive either. I'm sure there's some source out there that I've missed too, even just restricting it to the Gemara or the Torah. But again, the point here is more to show the complexity of the situation than give up sock. So George, take the Gemara in Sanhedrin 7a. Uh, Rabbi Nachman said, according to Rabbi uh, uh, a judge who delivers judgment with perfect truth causes the Shekhinah to dwell in Israel. For it is written, God stands in the congregation uh, of God. In the midst of the judges, he he judges. He judges. Meaning, when you do, when you judge in true cases, you bring God down because we have the pasuk in Psalms. God stands in the congregation, in God's congregation, in the middle of the judges. He's with them. All right. And he who does not deliver judgments of perfect truth causes the shechinah to depart from the midst of Israel, for it is written, because of the oppression of the poor. Because of the sign of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. And again, Rabbi Samuel, uh, Nachmani, Ben Nachmani, uh, reporting Rabbi uh, Yonatan, 
said, a judge who just unjustly takes the possessions, money of one and gives them to another, the Holy One, blessed be he, takes from him his life, for it is written, rob not the poor because he is poor, neither oppress the afflicted uh, in the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and will despoil the life of those who despoil them. It's a pretty big statement. Call Dayan Shino tell me Zeh, Venotain Lazesh Lokadin, Hakadosh Baruchu no tell me Menunaf Show. If you're a judge and you improperly take money from one person and give it to someone else, you are take God takes away life from you. Now again, whether or not this is actually true, again we have no way to do the test studies, it does show that if you're a judge, you have to be pretty damn careful before you make someone pay someone else. Does, does, I mean, is there like a Tosus or Rashi that now show is not necessarily his money, it is definitely his physical life? Because, you know, it's like Ani is Kamesa, a person, a poor person is like he's dead. Maybe it means he just takes. Well, you want to darshan the Agata, you darshan the Agata. The point is here taking money from one person and giving it to someone else, Shalokadin, is bad. I mean, of course. That's it. Right. right now, I like I said, I'm focusing on straight Gemara here. You want to interpret this any way you want. There's no way for me to, you know, for anyone to prove that God actually does this. Right. right? The important thing is the message of this Musr right. of don't do that. Right. How is that applicable to reparations? Simple. Before you take money, right, from one group and give it to another group, according to Jewish law, you would have to be really certain that that's what the just thing is. Uh, Sam, take the next three sources. Uh, two verses in Exodus that seem to say the same thing with an elaboration from the Michilta. And do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. Do not distort justice to your people. Poor people. Sorry, poor people. Yeah, that poor thing is important. (laughs) Do not distort justice to the poor in his dispute. Why is this said when it already says, do not show favoritism to the poor? This only tells me if he simply is poor, but a poor person who is in need, how do we know it is forbidden to distort justice in his favor? In fairness, I wasn't entirely sure how to translate that of Anita Ev Minayan, because I would assume that most poor people need stuff or want stuff. So my guess is it's a poor person who is at different levels of poverty, so someone who is particularly needy is how I understand it. So continue. Therefore, this verse says, "Do not distort justice to the person. Do not distort justice to the poor in his dispute. If a wicked person and a good person stand before you in judgment, so that you do not say, since he is wicked, I will rule against him in judgment. Therefore, the Torah says, do not distort justice to the poor in his dispute. Someone who is poor and needs folk. So this is a biblical, a rabbinic explanation of two biblical verses that prohibit prejudice in a court system, regardless of what might have happened in the past. When you've got two people in front of you, if there's a case between a wealthy man and a poor man, you can't say, well, the wealthy guy can handle the loss, the poor person can't, so therefore I'm going to favor the poor person. You do that, you violate biblical law. Similarly, let's say the guy is otherwise a scumbag. You don't assume he's a scumbag in this case. Each case has to be determined based on its merits. All right, you can't make broad sweeping associations, but rather what is the case? 
And a lot comes down to a particular principle that appears often, and it is in Hebrew, If I want to take money from someone else, the burden of of proof is on me. The one who wishes to extract from his friend, burden of proof lies on him. Right? So if I took Sam to court, I think he owes me $50. I'm the one who has to prove he owes me $50. Right? That's it. Okay? That's an, though all these things together. Um, actually, uh, Corinne, take the next one. Uh, g- uh, general statement here about justice versus charity. Uh, for Rachel Kish said, it is written, do justice to the afflicted and poor. What is meant by do justice? Can it mean favor him in his lawsuit? Surely it is written, thou shalt not favor a poor man in his cause. Rather, it means be liberal with what is yours and give it to him. Right. Again, here we have, so here would be an example of a case here between justice and tzedakah. Let's say I've got a poor person in my court, and based on the facts presented to me, comes out that the poor person owes $500. Poor people usually don't have $500 lying around, right? So as a matter of justice, I would have to rule against him. As a matter of tzedakah, I would write a personal check and cover it. Assuming, of course, I could. It's not like judges get paid that well either. right? But that would be a very explicit distinction here between what is tzedakah, what is charity, and what is justice. If we're looking at this from charity, well then, sure. Although there are other rules of charity, such as you can't give more than 20%. So if it is charitable, well, and also like probably shouldn't go into debt to give charity either. So if you're looking at it from charity, it's not like that helps our, dis- uh, our discussion on reparations. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about reparations, something that's owed. So you put all this together, what we have is, one... You want to take money from someone? You gotta prove it. Two, you transfer money inappropriately? Then you're breaking Jewish law too. And you cannot be prejudiced and assume one side automatically deserves it over the other for any such reason. For Jewish legal cases you need a plaintiff, a defendant, a specific claim from the plaintiff to extract money from the specific defendant with no prejudice, and each case must be determined based on the merits of the claim, not the status of the participants. We all good so far? Any arguments on that? Okay. So, let's move on to, well, what might be some relevant laws that could be applicable in a, dis- in a Jewish discussion about damages? Uh, so, Risa, take above a common 91A. Come in here. Regarding the five items, an, an estimation will be made and the payment made straight away. When you injure someone. So, right now we're talking about Nizikin here. If I hit someone pay five categories worth of damages. According to this Gemara, the estimate for how much I paid is made immediately. Continue. Though healing and loss of time will have to be estimated for the whole period until he completely recovers. If after the estimation was made, his health continued to deteriorate, the payment will not be more than in accordance with the previous estimation. So also, if after the estimation was made... He recovered rapidly. Payment will be made of the whole sum estimated. We see from here that estimation is essential also in the case of mere damage. So how do you know what to pay? You go to the court as soon as possible. They say, here's what we think you owe. That's a minimum. If it winds up costing more, then it's more. 
Very important for this question of reparations, because let's not forget. Um, actually, let's take it a step back. People in these arguments will frequently make comparisons to the German government paying reparations to Jews from Germany. But it's a ve- I don't think that's a very clear parallel for the simple reason that, like this Gemara, those assessments were made pretty quickly after the war. What that means is you, the people responsible for what they did were held accountable. The people who benefited were the people who suffered. One of the big, big problems we have of reparations today is that the people most responsible for these policies are long dead. Certainly slavery. Same thing with most of the victims. Right? Some might still be alive, but you know, how do you evaluate these things? When you have damage, in order to correctly assess the damage, it has to be done as soon as possible. For some of the damages here, uh, like, you know, uh, repoy, right, the health thing, there could be, say, some complications, and we'll see Gamara's about developed complications about paying extra, um, but the basic damage is if I injure you, like immediate hospital bills, all right, you have hospital bills. Complications are complicated, and I promise you we get to that in a later source, right? If it takes more, then it costs you more. But if not, all right, so that's your minimum. Yeah. Most of the arguments uh, are about um, payment for damages deal with an individual, not with a group of Yes, that is a fantastic point. That is why you need to have the specific plaintiff making a specific claim. So according to, in Coates' article, he actually describes that we have lineage records. We can trace a lot of stuff back, maybe not everything. But let's say there's one particular African-American family who can trace their slave lineage, who can trace, here's what we used to own, right? Would they have a specific claim, and how would that claim be calculated? Also true. You might be able to track those down as well, right? Now, again, when we in the in the discussion of reparations, at least according to Coates, it even though they say it's a matter of justice, the participants are kept intentionally ambiguous. Right? Well, you, there's no sense of like proving that you deserve it. There's no sense of proving that you owe it. It's just, here's what needs to be accomplished of income inequality, and we're going to use reparations almost as a way to achieve that. Right? I know it seems... It's really reparations, it's economic, it's like a Exactly, but through the thing... Meaning, correct, that's kind of the point here. Right? If it's really reparations, then specific people could make specific claims against, exactly. So you might find a bias, let's say, against families with a deep southern background. Sorry, Uh, you have a southerner here, right? So if you know that there's a really wealthy family somewhere in, I don't know, Alabama, right? They don't really have a great racial history and say, well, your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather owned my great-great-great-great-grandfather. All right, well, then you could have a specific, or you might even be able to have a class action suit, right? But here you're talking, he's not talking about that. Coates is really looking at, and I called it systemic, that there was racism that was intrinsically part of the whole culture, the entire society of America was corrupt and therefore the entire society should be held accountable. There was a law that was passed that said something like um, every slave is entitled to 
Three acres and a mule. Fifty acres, whatever. Yeah, so he actually discusses that. Um, as not really, yeah, they, he, he covers that part in the... Uh, what is that, post-emancipation? Uh, yeah, this place, this place, this place. Right, because otherwise it would be... Yeah, see the... Um, that, that was evaluation of the damages at that time. Yeah, but also... Well, one second. Time out, time out, time, time out for a second here. You could say that was, you know, the evaluations of that time and that should be over, but also consider the source. If the go- if the United States culture was so... Agriculture. No, I don't mean agriculture. If they were so predisposed uh, to treating African Americans as subhuman, could you really trust that assessment as being valid? It's a fair point. Listen, he get. I, I can tell you this. If you read the whole article, there, listen, it was a long article. I quoted a lot from here. He does deal with that, okay? So I would refer you there. Um, all right. So mention that one of the big issues we have here is the generational problem. So what are the halachot about these generational debts? Uh, debts and obligations on you know, either side. Uh, Beryl, uh, Gemarik, Tubot, 80, uh, 68A and B. So, so uh, Rav Khan said to Rav Papa, according to the statement you made, that the repayment of a, de- uh, of a debt to a creditor is, is a... Uh, religious uh, act. Religious it's act. a bad... Mitzvah. That is a bad translation. It's a mitzvah. Yeah. Meaning repaying it... Meaning the reason why it says religious act is... In addition to there being a civil obligation to pay back a loan, it's a mitzvah, meaning when we think of like stealing, we don't have a pure split between civil and religious. I steal money from someone, yes, it's a crime against man, but it's also a crime against God. So according to Rav Papa, repaying a debt, yes, there's a civil obligation to do so, but there's a religious mitzvah attached to it. The dichotomy that we might be familiar with is not that clear in halacha. I it wasn't mine. I copied from Cincino. Uh, what is, so what is the ruling where a debtor said, I am not disposed to perform a religious act. I, 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 don't, uh, I don't need a mitzvah. I don't, right? I don't, I don't, yeah. Well, Someone doesn't want to do a mitzvah. Right, right. Um, so uh, we... I get what's, what's that, uh, that? The other replied. Being where Papa replied. The other replied, have learned, this applies only to negative precepts. Um, but in the case of a positive precept, for instance, when a man is told make a sukkah and does not make it uh, or perform the, the commandment, the mitzvah of the um, of lulav, and he does not perform it, he is flawed until his soul departs. Yeah. And continue. So according to Rav Papa, if there is a debt then you have to repay it. There's a mitzvah to do so. But this pairs, do the next source. It's a Gemara and Arachan, which combines another statement with Rav Papa. Nachman said, at first I would not distrain upon the property of orphans. But when I heard the statement of our colleague, Rav Huna, in the name of Rav, as for orphans who enjoy what does not belong to them, let them follow him who left them. Uh, From that time on, I distrain upon it. Why not at first, Rav Papa said. Why not at first? Not at so first. Rav Papa said... So Rav Papa said the paying of a, uh, of a debt is a, is a commandment... Uh, and minor... And minor orphans are not obliged to fill this commandment. So here's the situation, right? Someone's father owes money. There is a mitzvah to repay that money. Now, someone dies, the money goes to the kids, Right? But there's also a debt attached to there too. If the children are not at the age of bar mitzvah, 
right, then we don't have a mitzvah, they have no commandment or obligation to return the money such that we don't go and we raid their inheritance. But if they are bar mitzvah, we do. Uh, there's actually a whole section in Shulchan Aruch that deals with this specific question. So if father dies, the kids are responsible for paying the money back from the estate. That doesn't mean they carry on all the debts, mind you. Let's say the father died penniless and the kids don't get any money. Well, then the kids don't pay it back. It's only from that specific money. Additionally, at least according to the tour in Shulchan Aruch, if they spent all of the actual money from the inheritance before they got a chance to collect, then they're exempt from paying it back because it was from a different pile of money. Right, because then it's not paying back what's from their fathers, they're paying that's from them. And the liabilities also go the other way too. Uh, George, uh, Mishnah above a common 9-5. Uh, one man robbed another uh, to the extent of uh, a fruta, uh, it's a matter of money. Yeah, no, it's the minimum amount of money that's significant in a, uh, for a court case. Meaning if you steal less than a pruta, you still violate the religious law of stealing, but you would not be held accountable in Jewish law, in a civil court. All right? Uh, an oath, if he did not do so, uh, he would have to convey personally to him, even as far as to Medina, Medea, that's another city, mm-hmm. he may give it to neither to his son nor to his agent, uh, though he may give it to the sheriff of the court of law. If the plaintiff died, the robber would have, would have to resort uh, restore it. to his heirs. So this goes the other way. If I you know, steal money from Sam, Sam passes away, not for a long time hopefully, then I have to give it to your kid. Right? Because that's part of your inheritance. The obligation is on me. So it goes both ways. Uh, the debt and obligation can be passed down so that the, uh, whatchamacallit, the uh, inheritors right, can have to pay back money, but so does the obligation have to go to descendants. Now, what makes this uh, slightly complicated, just these two things, is that I haven't seen where it goes more than one generation. Meaning, all the sources, and I believe me, I looked at if someone listening online can point to me where it passes down from generation to generation, please let me know. But to here, it seems that there's a certain measure of kavod attached, well, we'll see about the stealing, but at least with the inheritance, there's a matter of kibud av attached, of like clearing your father's name, and in theory that could apply to grandparents too. But I didn't see anything explicit about it because it was probably unusual, right, for, you know, things to get passed down that much. I don't know. Right, but it's certainly you know. On one hand, again, there is something that we have in Jewish law about these sorts of debts and obligations being passed down, at the very least for one generation. Right? I don't know about two. I'd be inclined to think that it doesn't, given the limitations that are placed on even one generation. That with two, it might be even more difficult. I don't know. All right. Uh, another component here is some of the complaints that you know, people have made with reparations has been, well, what happened afterwards? And here, you know, this is also something that gets a, a little complicated and will lead us into the next, uh, next section. Uh, so, Sam? Our rabbi is taught if a Levite sells a field to any ordinary Israelite with the stipulation that the first tithe therefrom is to be given to him. The first tithe from it must be given to him. If he stipulated that it was to be given to him and to his sons, and he then died, it is to be given to his sons. If the stipulation is, as long as this field is in your possession, and he, the purchaser, sells it 
and then buys it again, the Levite has no claim on him. How can all this be, seeing that a man cannot transfer to another possession of something that does not yet exist? So in Hebrew, the idiom is, If something doesn't exist like in the world, you can't really deal with that at all. Um, what Maimonides here, like, and this is where I quoted Rambam because it gives a little more information. You can't transfer ownership over. This is uh, Rambam Hilchot Mechira twenty two one, where he says a person cannot transfer ownership over an article that has not yet come into existence. This applies regard to a sale, uh, with regard to a present, with regard to the disp- uh, disposition of an oral will. What is implied if you say what my fields uh, will grow is sold to you, what this tree will grow is given to you, given that so and so of the offspring that this animal bears. The recipient doesn't acquire anything. Similar principles apply in all analogous situations. In Hilchot Mechira 22, 16, and 17, Rambam kind of goes off script. And he argues with uh, Gaonim here. He says, since this is so, a person on his deathbed says, Wherever, whatever this tree produces should be given to the poor, or the rent from this house should be given to the poor. The poor acquire these objects. There are Gaonim who differ with this principle and hold that the poor only acquire in a similar matter uh, to that of an ordinary person. Therefore, they do not accept an entity that has not come into existence. I do not accept these principles. My rationale is that a person is not commanded to transfer ownership of property. He is, however, commanded to fulfill his pledges to charity or to consecrate property, as he is commanded to fill other vows, as we have explained in Hilchot Arachim. So if we hold stop, if we hold like Rav Papa and we say that there's a chov, there is an obligation that we would owe the African American community then it's a mitzvah to pay it back. If it is a mitzvah to pay it back, then at least according to Rambam, the principle of acquiring something that has not yet come into existence doesn't kick in. Because he said, well, it might work with tzedakah, right? But charity, but since charity is a mitzvah, well, then maybe this could apply for other mitzvot too. What didn't come into existence yet? Uh, So when you're talking about trying to calculate future damages, meaning I did something to you now, and because of that, blah, 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 you know, is going to happen in the future. So uh, here's, we're going to speak about this in the next full section. So let's say, exactly, so here's an example. by enacting discriminatory practices such that African Americans lived in areas with bad schools. The exact damage I did specifically, you can say regarded housing. But does that therefore extend to everything else that's related to housing? Right. right. So that you can say, yes, there might be a linear cause effect, uh, but if that is, it hasn't happened yet. Meaning, this is something I did to you. Does it affect, you know, the education your children are going to get for the next 12 years? Right. Yeah, possibly, but that wasn't the actual damage. Right. According to, again, yeah. giving you different ways of interpreting this that can be spun in, you know, however people want to. The future contracts is a lot more complicated. Uh, we dealt with that in other classes with the Nasmachta. Futures are hard, and there's a lot that's written about that. It's a wonderful question, well beyond the scope of what we can do. So, uh, one more thing here. Um, 
that will also you know, be very important for our theme. A mission above a common 9-9. If a man robbed his father and, when charged by him, denied it by oath, and afterwards the father died, he would have to repay the principal and a fifth and a trespass offering to his father's children or to his father's brothers. But if he is unwilling to do so or is nothing with him, he should borrow the amount of money from others and perform the duty of restoration of any of the relatives. And the creditors can subsequently come and demand to be paid the portion which would have, by law, belong to the robber as an heir. So here he's saying, wait a second, if you've got certain types of hove, he's got to go borrow in order to pay it back, even to pay it back to the kids, right, from the inheritance, similar to what we saw earlier. Right? Rav Papa added, here's Rav Papa again, he must, however, say, this is due for having robbed my father. Fascinating statement. You have to state that explicitly. And it's something that fits in very well with Coates' argument. Coates discussed things like affirmative action. Why would that not count as a thing of reparations? And part of his argument was people couldn't make up their minds what, rep- what affirmative action was supposed to do. Right? There's something to be said for not just doing something, but stating explicitly, here's why you're doing it. Uh, we'll skip a bit of this, the Machlok at Rabbi Akiva and Rav Yochanan here. But according to Rabbi Akiva, right, there's a situation here. If, let's say someone steals money from a convert, convert who doesn't have any kids, technically has no family. So where are you supposed to give the money? According to the Gemara, you're supposed to give it to the priest that's around. Why? According to Rabbi, according to uh, Rav Yosef Lili, you doesn't have to give back to anyone. I'm sorry, it was Rav Yosef Lili. He doesn't have to give it back to anyone. But according to Rabbi Akiva, there is no remedy for him to obtain atonement unless he should divest himself from the amount stolen. According to this Gemara, if you steal property, right? It's not just that you've got the civil obligation to return it, you've got the moral obligation to return what you owed. Your goods are tainted. Right? Uh, and I believe, you know, in this halacha, it goes by Rabbi Akiva as opposed to Rabbi Yosei Aglili. Um, and it also fits in with Rav Papa. Remember, what's the tshuva process? Part of it is you make someone whole, and part of it is you fix yourself. So it means you're admitting, you're doing vidoy. Here's what I did. I am doing kapara, right? Yes, you might be getting tashlumen or not, but even if you don't exist anymore, I have the obligation to free my soul, and I have an obligation to get this off my chest. This Gemara would fit in very well with Coates' argument because there's a moral principle attached to it. Right? But unfortunately, we're not just talking about moral principles or we could be overstating what these moral principles might be. So let's talk a bit about secondary damages and matters of personal responsibility. And this is going to get very uh, possibly controversial, so let me handle this and not put this on you. So Coates writes, uh, Just as black families of all income remain handicapped by wealth, so too do they remain handicapped by the restricted choice of neighborhood. Black people with upper middle class incomes do not generally live in upper middle class neighborhoods. Sharkey's research shows that black families making $100,000 typically live in the type kinds of neighborhoods inhabited by white families making $30,000. Blacks and whites inhabit such different neighborhoods, Sharkey writes, that it is not possible to compare the economic outcomes of black and white children. Um, I don't know Sharkey's research in depth myself. Uh, I don't know what the causes are for this in terms of what's actually restricted, such that 
are these discrimination policies still in effect today? Because otherwise, sticking around amongst lower income individuals or in a lower income community when you can afford to leave right, would seem to be a matter of personal choice. Um, public housing. Public housing, uh, this is from public housing image versus facts from the uh, U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Uh, this was written in 1995. Uh, public housing serves black households at a rate substantially greater than their share of the renter population. 48% of public housing households are black compared to only 19% of all renter households. Taking income into account does not alter this conclusion since only 30% of households with incomes low enough to qualify for public housing are black. What this could mean is one of two things. Either, one thing is why are you in public housing because you can't afford anything else, but according to this it's no, like people should be able to afford anything else, but they just have trouble finding apartments to rent. There's a third possibility which we all know from New York City in that if you've been grandfathered into public housing that uh, whether it's a Mitchell Lama or something mm. like that, even if your personal economic status changes for the better, people don't have to requalify to live in that housing. And if they're happy living in that housing, uh, then they'll choose to stay, even if they're economically able to. That is a very good point. Uh, we have a few people in our school who do work for the housing department, and the housing department and the policy in New York City is crazy beyond belief. Yeah, I'm just saying. Um, it's, what you raise is an excellent point. Um, you know, so how much of it is a matter of choice there, too? It's something that, you know, bothered me a bit. Like, public housing itself, you know, we could argue about, you know, as a policy, but... You know, when I walk by some of the public housing things, it's one thing to see cars, but I also see luxury cars, right? right? And I can't afford a car. Now, does that mean everyone? No. Does that mean that some people are, you know, perhaps abusing the system? Sure. Statistically, I don't listen. I'm not going to say everyone is. I'm not going to say no one is. But odds are someone is. Additionally, when you think about what is public housing, all right, you Public housing is a benefit that is given to a select group of people over other you know, over others. Right? You could argue that this too is a form of, and I want to say, well, if you want to say reparations, it's a form of the state, the government, trying to help out a disadvantaged class, which in this case happens to be predominantly black. Um, according to the uh, numbers I found of politics and demographics of food stamp recipients, uh, this was written by uh, Rich Morin from the Pew Research Center. Uh, beyond politics, equally larger, larger gaps emerge in partisan participation rates of many core social and demographic groups. For example, women were about twice as likely as men, 23 versus 12%, to have received food stamps at some points in their lives. Blacks are about twice as likely as whites to have used this benefit during their lives, 31 to 15%. Among Hispanics, 22% save the collected food stamps. Um, there's another... Um there's a chart that I put in here from the National Center for Education Resources. Uh, this is number percentage of people receiving public assistance. And when you see it broken down by ethnicity, uh, African Americans are way, way ahead of everyone else, especially compared to whites. Uh, pretty much straight down the line. This is from 1980 to 2009. This seems a pretty consistent policy here. All right. Now, Coates says, one thread of thinking in the African-American community holds that these depressing numbers 
partially stem from cultural pathologies that can be altered through individual grit and exceptionally good behavior. So you can say, oh, people should just be able to pick themselves up by their own bootstraps and whatnot, if only they took things together. So in 2011, Philadelphia Mayor uh, Michael Nutter, responding to violence among young black males, put the blame on the family. Too many men making too many babies don't want it, uh, that they, uh, too many babies they don't want to take care of, and then we end up dealing with your children. Nutter turned to those presumably fatherless babies, pull your pants up and buy a belt because no one wants to see your underwear or the crack of your butt. The fifth threat is as old as black politics itself. It is also wrong. The kind of trenchant racism to which black people have persistently been subjected can never be defeated by making its victims more respectable. The essence of American racism is disrespect. And in the wake of the grim numbers, we see grim inheritance. Now, this is a passage with which I think you can give a, I think, really substantial argument against Coates. To say that African Americans have been given a raw deal by society, I think we might be able to accept all that as a premise. But if you're going to talk about the income gap between, and that's the problem you're trying to solve, remember we said earlier, to what extent is it part of systemic racism versus bad personal choices? Or, let's say bad personal choices, Personal choices that led to the same conclusion or might have had an impact to that same conclusion. So we have some statistics here uh, from Act Rochester. Single parent families by race and ethnicity. And as you see here, you've got it. The percent of single parent families by race and ethnicity between 2008 and 2012, a whole lot higher amongst the black or African American population. Um, And you see the uh, actual numbers in the chart below. What about high school? According to the National Center for Education Stats, uh, the percentage of high school dropouts from among 16 to 24-year-olds by sex, race, and ethnicity, you see that black and non-Hispanic drop out with a possible exception of a few years, like 94, maybe 2001, tend to drop out more than whites. Hispanics drop out at a much higher rate, which we might be able to attribute to language. Makes it a whole lot harder. Right Now, Coates is willing to dismiss that completely as having any impact on economic disparity. Which part? Uh, the personal choice matter. Right, because he's like, yeah, people will argue, you know, don't ha- run around having a whole lot of kids, but he says that's wrong. I mean, that doesn't solve the problem. Now, would that solve systemic racism? No. Frankly, I'm not, I mean, again, what is the goal that you're trying to achieve? If the goal is you want to try to make America less racist, well then, I don't see how giving people money makes us less racist. If you're going to say, well, it's about solving the income gap, well, guess what? The income gap is not entirely because of the white man. Meaning, is there a contributing factor? Sure. Right. Sociologists, I, I will leave it up to them to debate today to tomorrow cause effect. Right. right? Huge, huge thing. Like, is it, you know, does poverty create dropout rates or does dropout rates create poverty? Right? You might see a correlation between the two, but as we know, that doesn't equal causation. All right. Now, what causes the other? Who knows? Could we legitimately say that if you don't have a high school education, the odds of you making a lot of money in your life is going to drop? Yeah, probably. Uh, having raising, uh, you know, having kids without raising them in a nuclear family, does that have some impact on upper mobility? I would guess yes. I mean, I can't prove that, but and again, 
we're talking about tendencies here. We could all give examples. So and so came from this great family and you know was miserable, and so and so you know was raised from a broken home and turned out okay. Not the point, right? right? We're talking about if you're going to talk about the whole society, there are certain things that were tr- that are the result of personal choice. And I spoke to a friend and I said, well, these aren't really personal choices. And the answer is, it is. Meaning, unless someone is raped, then you had a personal choice to have sex. You know, unprotected sex or whatever. If you're going to talk about crime, I mean, you could argue even that crime is a choice. I mean, not all of the crime that goes on in these neighborhoods is of the Jean Valjean variety. Stealing a loaf of bread to feed your starving family, right? Is Does that go on? I'm sure it does. People who are living in poverty might resort to crime, right? That I understand too, right? Does that justify everything? Hard to say. Why is there no data, or uh, maybe, maybe it's brought up later, of, of um, similar economic conditions but with a different race? Meaning, take a poor, uh, whatever, Albanian that came in, with, uh, without high school, so that's it. So I'm sure that someone has done those studies. Since I'm focusing on reparations, it's a lot easier to find this. Okay. Remember, sociologists, uh, especially if you're in academia, need data sets to do degrees. However, the argument can go like this: um, uh, There was an idiot from MSNBC that made some, and someone pointed out that, hey, my parents came from Europe after the Holocaust and managed to make it, and he responded, "The power of whiteness." White Exactly. So, according to the logic, assuming there is one, it's certain people from certain ethnicities can pass easier. Meaning, I come from Europe. Yes, I wear a kippah. But for the most part, I look like everyone else here. An African-American in a predominantly white place sticks out as being different. Right? So... Could other things have be, uh, be done based on nationalities? Sure. But it's a lot easier to pass and to integrate when I can fit in the same as everyone else. Right. Yeah. I'm in a college university. There are a lot of black Africans who come to this country. They're as black as black mm-hmm. Canadians, mm-hmm. and they succeed. Yep. So how do all the other factors can't say... Oh, Non-American blacks. I mean, you're truly African. Yeah, Africans. Well, it doesn't matter. Meaning, the point is, you can find people who live in really horrible situations and come out so much stronger and wonderful people. Right. You also find people who live very sheltered, affluent lives who are miserable human beings. Right. right? So both of those happen. Right. I don't know. Individuals, almost as good when they come from uh, Nigeria or Ghana or any place else. Ireland. Yeah. I get the ones that don't. You're not going to see on college campuses. Well, you're just not going to see them. Yes, you're only seeing. The they, they make the choice. Oh, you you mean people who are black that don't happen to be from Africa? Is that what you're referring to? No, no. I'm, I'm saying the ones who come from Africa. Yeah. Right. They come because of choice. Yes. And they understand what it takes to rise up. Mm-hmm. To, uh, well, there could also, again, so but you said, hold it, stop, 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 stop for a second. You said the operative word being choice. When you come in today from Africa or from anyone else, that is your decision. The argument is for the African Americans who live in America today, who are descendants from slavery, never really had that choice. 
meaning ah so they would so the argument would go they really don't have the same choice because they still don't have the same options based on policies that gutted public schools they don't have the same choices of education now again I can make certain distinctions here, meaning, do you have the best education? No. Do you have a choice not to knock up your girlfriend? Yeah. That, in my opinion, is a choice. Dropping out of high school, meaning we might not be giving you the best high school. The public housing might not be that great. Are those contributing factors to certain things? Sure. But there are these second-level issues. So let's look at some gamars about this. Um, let me do this because we're running a bit late. So this is a, a very important gemara, which we saw a bit in our healthcare shear. Uh, comma 85a. Our rabbis taught, whence can we learn that when ulcers have grown on account of a wound and the wound breaks open again, the offender would still be liable to heal it and also pay him for the additional loss of time. Because it says, only he shall pay for the loss of time and he too shall heal. Meaning two of the um, uh, categories of damage. If I injure someone, I have to pay not just for your medical bills, but if you lost time at work, i got to pay you the back wages. Right? One is repoy from the word rofan, the other is shevet, like you might know from Shabbat, of just not working. Right? So if there was a wound and because of that wound something else happened. First opinion, I'm still liable. Right? Uh, that is so even when the ulcers were not caused by the wound. Therefore, uh, oh, that being so, I might say this can also, uh, this is so even when the ulcers were not caused by the wound. It therefore says only. Meaning if something else happens that wasn't a direct cause, right, then I'd be exempt. Rav Yossi ben Yehuda, however, so this is a dispute, said that even when they were caused by the wound, he would be exempt, since it says only. Meaning, according to Rav Yossi ben Yehuda, I'm only obligated from the initial damages. So if I hit someone and I break your arm, that's what I have to pay for. If there was a complication that later came from my action, like based on the surgery that caused you to get it amputated, that, according to Rav Yossi ben Yehuda, won't be ex- I, I'd be exempt from that. Some say that the view of Rav Yossi, uh, the view of Rav Yossi, even when they were caused by the one be exempt means, altogether from any liability whatsoever, which is also the view of the rabbis mentioned last. But others say that even when they were caused by the wound, he would be exempt only from paying loss of time, but he would still be res- uh, liable for healing. So there would be a dispute, meaning a distinction there of, I'd only pay you for the healing part, but not for the loss of work. Right? So this goes to also the derivative things of further down the line. The Gemara continues, the master stated, in that case I might say that this is so even where the ulcers were not caused by the wound. It therefore says further only. But is it, uh, but is a text necessary to teach there is an exemption from the case where they are not from the wound? It may be replied that what is meant by not caused by the wound is as taught if the injured person disobeyed his medical advice and ate honey or other sort of sweet things and threw honey and any sort of sweetness are harmful to a wound and the wound may have consequence and became scabby, it might have been said to the offender should still be liable to continue to heal him. To rule this out, it says only. According to this Gemara, you remember this from the healthcare shear, if I injure you and you ignore doctor's orders, I'm exempt. That ain't my fault. Now, you apply that to the modern-day situation, even if we assume that the condition is because of systemic exploitation, right? If we tell people, hey, you shouldn't do this, you do it anyway, you can't blame the system for that, or at least not according to Jewish law, right? 
There is, however, a little bit of a catch, though. Um, and this, you know, kind of like gets to the whole theme. And this is a Gemara in Bavakama 22b, that there's a case of fire being entrusted to a deaf mute and an idiot or, or an idiot or minor resulting in damage. No action can be instituted in civil courts, but there is a liability according to divine justice. Patur midinei adam v'chayav bidinei shemayim. And I, I won't go through this whole case in detail, but this is a case, the reason why I picked this one is it's an incident where your actions cause something else to happen. And there's a distinction whether or not you give him like an actual fire or you give him coal, meaning to what extent was the damage that this person caused an inevitability. But fascinating distinction here. You are exempt from court, but chayav b'dine shemayim. The courts can't do anything for it. And remember what we saw earlier. If the court did try to extract money from you incorrectly, that's bad. Right? But then it's up to God. And we'll see in the last section, God has his own system of justice. Yeah? Supposing you do for me, and I don't do everything to help my heal. Mm-hmm. And so it takes longer for me to heal. Mm-hmm. Are you responsible for that additional time? If if it's a matter of your own personal choice, it would seem to be to be no. Okay. So if I don't do anything to lift myself out, out of poverty or racial discrimination, I don't go against it. Am I? It's harder to make that argument because when I say here's an important distinction I made. I think that's a great question that's worth explaining. But let me start with a counterexample. When I gave the specific examples here of uh, pregnancy, of like having multiple children, dropping out of high school, those are decisions that you make yourself that have negative consequences. To say that you didn't try hard enough is a whole lot harder to say. We actually taught that in one of our midrashim on Friday night, where it hold it, where if you say that to someone, of like if someone asks you for money and you say, hey buddy, why don't you get a job? God gets really ticked off of that, that it's not enough that you don't help him out, but you actually make, you know, you're mocking him for his lot. You can't say, it's a matter of opportunities, right? If I go to a lousy high school and I've got lousy teachers, you know, I'm sticking in school, I'm putting in all the work, I have a much lower ceiling than someone who goes to a fancy prep school. Right, so can you try to build yourself up? Sure, but the deck is also stacked against you. Especially when, right, so high school is one. Going to get a college degree, getting a college degree today is crazy expensive. That's assuming you can get in. Even if you do get in, is that any guarantee of a job or success? Not at all, right? Uh, going into business, there is no clear path to success. The more money and education experience you have, the better. This is where you know people would argue about privilege, where certain people have advantages that other people don't have. Right now, people will often invoke privilege as a way of making someone feel guilty about what they have. But you sure, I, But in my opinion, you certainly minimally need to be aware that. They're, based on their home life, based on their surroundings, might not be able to pull themselves up as high. Because they don't have the options, they don't have the opportunities, they don't have that possibility that other people might share. So you've got a better argument to say, you made consciously bad decisions versus you didn't do as much as you were supposed to. You didn't have those options, right? 
Well, you do. There are people who come out of the worst high schools yeah. who succeed and become doctors. Some do, but guess what? Let's say you've got multiple people out of the worst high school in New York City, right? Even the valedictorian probably isn't going to get into Yale, right? So that person's ceiling is going to be limited. If that person doesn't have connections, if that person doesn't have... Listen, I'm not saying it can't be done, but there's a difference between saying it's possible versus we expect you to achieve a great deal of success despite overwhelming adversity. We can expect you to do as much as you can. Which still might not bring you out of poverty. Meaning sometimes your best isn't going to be good enough to pull yourself up, especially if you're in a huge hole. Um, Again, that's why making that distinction between when you consciously, when you of your choice make a poor decision that people can tell you about versus saying you did not succeed enough as you should have. Based on what? Huge different things there. That's why very important to make that. Um, some years ago, I had uh, this black girl in my class. She would, would be an A student anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I had a conversation with her and I asked her, you know, how come you, you, know, you do so well and some of your classmates are doing so well? She said she used to go to her uncle, who is a pharmacist, and he made her study. Yep. Guess what? If you live in a broken home, you don't have that. I will argue. I had in this situation in the physics department. I'm not, again, I'm not saying that you don't have anecdotal evidence of this happening. There's people who have a vision of the future. Yes. And they will chase it. Yes. People who have a different vision of of, of what their future is and they stay stuck. So then I would say the result then would be from making poor decisions. But you would still, listen, there are still plenty of people in America who work hard, who try hard, and cannot bring themselves out of poverty. Okay? Class of working poor. Right? Now, if you want to say that because someone's so screwed up their life because they made bad decisions, sure, that goes under the first category. But that's not what you said. I mean, I'm sure you've also had plenty of students who you saw work their brains out and are always in the library and can't muster anything past a C. Have you ever had that? Yeah. There you go. That's the answer. But, you know, it's, it's not... He made every possible opportunity he could. Yes. He got further than he would have been otherwise. And it still might not be enough, is my point. But it gets him somewhere. But not not necessarily out of poverty, not necessarily out of public aid. That's the issue here, right? Is he better off than had he not done anything? He might even argue no, right? Do you have an idea how much money you can make as a prostitute? I mean, not you personally or me personally, but you make a lot more money per hour as a prostitute than most normal people do at day jobs, right? <laughs> so they could argue no. Listen, I agree, right? People do... People do the right thing. But just because you spend your life doing the right thing and you make the sacrifices is not a guarantee of success. It's not going to guarantee that you pull yourself out of poverty. That's the important point. Karen, you had a point? I was going to say the playing field isn't level to begin with. And also your vision of the future is limited by the circumstances that you were raised in. Also true. I mean, if you're taught from birth that you are not going to achieve a high school diploma, you're going to internalize that. Yeah. Ah, so that mostly for the distinction being patur adam because divine justice works a little differently. Here are a couple of examples. One, 
Ephrath, this is source number 25 here. This is book of Joshua, end of chapter 6, beginning of chapter 7. So at that time, after the um, conquering of Jericho, Joshua proclaimed a solid oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he will lay its foundation. At the cost of its youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. But the Israelites weren't faithful in regard to devoted things. Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. So here you have a situation. Conquered Jericho. Jews weren't supposed to take anything from it. One guy did. Achan. And God was ticked off at all of Israel. Is that just? Is that fair? Does this not sound like collective punishment? Here's another one for you. Second uh, Samuel chapter 21 verses 1 through 9. So I'll summarize this here. There was a famine in the time of David. So David sought God. God said, it's because of Saul and his bloodstained house, it is because he put the, put the Gibeonites to death. For those unfamiliar with this, in the time of Joshua, he made a treaty with a group of natives called the Givonim, not to destroy them. Saul, during his pursuit of David, wiped out a bunch of Givonim. So because of that, and sort of breaking the treaty, God brought a famine to the Jewish people. So what did David do? He went to the uh, Givonim and he said, all right, what should I do? Like, you know, tell me what you want. And he said, uh, like verse 4, we have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul and his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do? David asked. They answered the king, as for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us and killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Givet of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 9, he handed them over to the Gibeonites who killed them all and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Is this justice here? All right. So, granted, this is with the Givonim, but they say, yeah, take these seven kids, doesn't even say which ones, like, yeah, take seven kids of Saul, let us kill them, and we'll be even. And David says, sure. And not only that, but it was fine. After that happened, God was okay with Israel. Right? Now, some of you might be familiar with this next source about, you know, that's really held up quintessentially as generational punishments here. So, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children uh, for the sins of the parents, it should be children's children for this, uh, to the third and fourth generation. So, even just stopping here, you can say, well, you know, there's a uh, statute of limitations for how long the punishment goes. So, some of you might be familiar with this. Uh, it's a Gemara in Sanhedrin 27b. From what our rabbis thought, the father shall not be put to death on account of the children. What does this teach? It is, uh, is it the father shall not be executed for sins committed by the children and vice versa? This is already explicitly stated. Every man should uh, be put to death for his own sin. Hence, fathers uh, shall, not me, uh, shall not be put to death on account of children must mean fathers should not be put to death on account of the testimony of their sons. And similarly, vice versa. Are not children then to be put to death for the sins committed by the parents? Is it not written, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children? Well, there 
The reference is to children who follow in their parents' footsteps. Meaning, if the father is a sinner and the kid does the same sin, he gets the punishment. So here, you might argue, well, if we didn't learn anything from racism back in the day and we still perpetuate it, well then maybe we as a society today are in fact liable. Going through a bit here, there's another thing. Here's one will stumble through the sin of another, uh, which teaches that all are, are held responsible for one another. There's the reference there, the references to such who had the power to restrain their fellow men from evil, but did not. Now we can say this too, this can go either way. Did we have the power to end racism? Well, yes and no, because on one hand we don't control the court system. On the other hand, you could argue that we're perpetuating itself. Uh, and I included here Gamar and Mako 24a, just because it was, I, I thought it was fascinating. Uh, Rav Yosei ben Hanina said, Our master Moses pronounced four adverse sentences on Israel, but four prophets came and revoked them. Uh, Moses had said, The Lord is visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children unto uh, the third and fourth generation. But Ezekiel claimed and declared, The soul that sinneth it shall die. So according, I mean, it's a very weird way of doing it. You can use the reconciliation from Sanhedrin, uh, but the language of Yosef and Hanina is that that whole pocate of a vote thing, no longer there. All right. Maybe you do punish? No, that you don't, that it doesn't exist anymore. The way, the language that he used here is, Arba Gzeirot Gazar Moshe Rabbeinu Al Yisrael, Ba'u Arba Anevi'im Uvi'lum. Uses that word bitlum, batel, nullified, gone. Amazing. It's a weird Gemara, isn't it? Because you would think, like, kind of would make him problematic, at least according to Rambam. Maybe? Just a little? Uh, Anyway, so what do we got from all this? Well, a whole lot of questions. Because, I mean, listen, my own family, aside from being white, are immigrants, right? So did we personally own any slaves? No. At the end of the day, you're going to argue this from a Jewish perspective. My own sense is, if you're going to talk about civil matters in terms of here's what we owe someone using that language, very, very difficult to make a Jewish ethical case for it. Because again, the burden of proof is on whoever wants to extract money. All right, no, that's a fair point. If the it, okay, so if someone is going to make an argument that the uh, the argument well, okay the argument that we're going to try to evaluate is from a Jewish perspective, the Jews ought to support reparations at least at least as Coates described it. Okay. Right now, if you're going to now, how would we view this? If you want to view it from a civil perspective, you would have to ask all those questions. What would you take in from whom? Because otherwise, you would be taking from someone who is innocent, right? It doesn't matter who you give it to at that point. You're going to take money from me, right? For something that I didn't do, that's unjust. Or for something I'm not responsible for. That, according to Jewish law, is an unjust decision. You want to talk about giving it to someone else. All right, well, whoever is the one who's receiving it, that person's going to need to be the one to make the claim. Can every single African-American make the claim that I am a victim of slavery? Probably not. Can every African-American say, I'm a victim of discrimination and demonstrate that? I'm sure plenty can. But by statistics, no. 
Right. right? Or at least people say, oh, well, we're all part of this system. Well, you have to prove that. Like, give me a specific example in court with actual evidence. You want to say it's a matter of descendants, right? And you want to go back? Well, we have some sources that could lead in that direction, but we don't know how long, how far back that goes, right? So at best, you could say, a specific African-American descendant of a slave can go through lineage and do all the archival work to show how that person either was owned by a slave uh, by a slave trader in Alabama or how this specific person was harmed by a government agency and therefore deserve, and like, uh, like the uh, housing policies that we read earlier. That also, incidentally, gets very complicated about how you deal with corporations and Jewish law. Because, I mean, today we say like corporations like a person, but damages have to be done to people. So, like by today's standards, right. if you're going to do a parallel, you might say, well, an African-American should sue in court. But they actually did and lost. So what are you going to do? Right. right, but that would be the solution of we have a legal case. Sue the American government. Right. We'll provide evidence. Right. They tried that, didn't work. Right. Now, do you have recourse by way of Jewish law again through a court to extract money from one and give to another? Mm-hmm. No. From the moral side, in terms of divine justice, I think that argument is still there. So, if you're going to make that argument, like from a policy le- policy level, what I could conceivably argue is. We may, like Coates said, have a moral responsibility to admit that reparations are due, but also say, due to other moral responsibilities, we don't have a way of extracting money from one and giving to someone else. Right. right? So then maybe you could start doing teshuva and start actually doing repenting. And part of that would mean is saying, because of the systemic racism, we are now going to undertake affirmative action explicitly to combat racism. Or if not racism, because affirmative action, you could argue, causes more racism, depending on the individual. You say, we are going to institute affirmative action to level the playing field and to uh, try to ameliorate decades, if not a century, of systemic discrimination. But is that really reparations in the form of something tangible? No. Does that mean we're morally exempt? To my understanding, and here's just my opinion, the thing in Jewish law that fits the best is patur midinei adam v'chayav bidine shemayim, at best, right? Because with chayav bidine shemayim, and this is, it's something that Jews can get away with, not just Jews, but people of faith, where if you believe that there's a God, and God is in control of justice, you know, nothing, we can do as much as we can on this earth, but you leave it up to God to fill in the gaps. So this comes up sometimes in other you know, court cases. You've got that one where um, a guy saw, uh, a rabbi saw someone with an axe, chase someone down an alleyway, came back with a bloody axe, and the guy was dead. Said, well, I didn't see you actually do it, so I can't testify. Right? And by Jewish law, we can't prosecute the guy. Right. But we still have that faith in a divine justice that would sort of equal this all out. You can't get away with that in the U.S. American argument. You can from a religious perspective. Fortunately, I'm not a politician, but I am a rabbi. Right Now, I could also understand why people would be very offended to say this. It's like, what do you mean? well, you can't do it, but you leave it up to God. The truth is we say that all the time on Yom Kippur. Right? And we you know, acknowledge 
we live in an imperfect world. We do the best that we can, but our hands are tied by our own sense of morality. Once you start playing favorites in the Jewish court system for social need, such as favoring the poor over the wealthy... All you're doing is swapping one injustice for another injustice, and that isn't a net gain. Swapping one injustice for another perversion of one perversion of justice for another perversion of justice is a perversion of justice. That's it. Right? Now, I'm sure there are people who might want to do something, but you can't do it using the court mechanism. Right? Again, if you want to talk about tzedakah, fine, separate area of Jewish law. But that's not what reparations are supposed to be. But affirmative action is a form of judgment where you give to one. He addresses, so he, uh, Coates addresses the ambiguities of affirmative action. And I think part of his objection was that since they never explicitly said, this is because, and some people said explicitly had nothing to do with, you know, the slavery part. For him, it's like the guy who says, I'm giving this money back because it was stolen, or my father stole this. Part of the chuva, the morality process, isn't just you know, glossing it over and pretending it didn't happen, right? You admit, the first thing of you do is you admit you did something wrong, and what you're doing is, you know, uh, I want to say, well, reparation is a bad word, but what you're doing is in direct response to fix the wrong that you did, right? I'm, you know, I'm sorry, Beryl, I hit you the other day. Please accept this as a token of my apology, right? No one did that with affirmative action. I was like, yeah, sorry about slavery and if you're a whole bunch of other, you know, things that we've been doing. We're going to do this explicitly to try to correct the wrongs that we did against your community. If that's what, what, if that was what happened, right, when the policy got instituted, I'm, Sure, he might have an argument. Now, maybe it couldn't have been argued that way for various political reasons, and some could argue, well, better we help people out, and the end result matters more than the why. But again, as Rabbi Akiva said, as long as you're holding on to like the stolen goods, there's like almost a taint there. Right, exactly. Pretty much. That's a great idiom. You're still holding on to it. Now, does that mean that someone whose wealth you inherited it from several generations ago should write a check to the first black person they see? Is that really reparation? I don't know. Again, from a civil perspective, I have no idea. In terms of correcting things in the eyes of God, like I keep saying, that's above my pay grade. Does the Shia, including Dita Damaku Sabina, I mean, you gave a good example that you're a white immigrant who wasn't around your family yep. during the time of slavery. Yep. Granted, and halakhically then, you personally, your entire family, may not necessarily be obligated to uh, give reparations or any type of damages to, to black people that are descendants of slaves or that could be mm-hmm. a claim. However, with that said, once you emigrated to America, became a citizen, and decided to join the um, society of American society. If American society decides as a whole of part of whatever it is, tax law, civil law, yep. like that, that we are going to grant uh, whatever. 1.5 trillion. Yeah, to, you know, whatever. Are you not obligated according to how often? Yes. Without question. Without question. Uh, United States government puts a tax, you got to pay the taxes, whether or not you like them. Right? It could be paying for Obamacare that you think is a waste of money or paying for wars that you think are unjust. Right. you got to pay your taxes regardless of where it goes. I guess there's a missing point. It's a very good point. Dita de Mahuta is a whole separate class. I know. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Well, from a halakha point of view, but it's not just halakha, it's 
halachic injustice, meaning, yes, if the government decides to do it, you would have to pay, but does that mean that we as a religion have it innate within our religion, some idea that this is something that we ought to promote because our religion demands this of us? And the answer, in my opinion, is no. Meaning, are there moral things? Sure. But once your sense of morality winds up imposing an injustice on someone else, you are no longer being moral according to Torah. Right? Now, again, that's my take. I'm sure people can read this and people can listen to this class, selectively pick the sources and turn it in either way to say, here's why it definitely is or definitely isn't. Like I keep doing this year, and once the more, if you're a real Shomer Torah, you don't have the luxury of picking one Gemara and pretending other stuff doesn't exist. Try to see the biggest range possible so you get the greatest picture. And like I said, I, I, I probably even missed stuff here too. And I tried racking my brain of trying to like figure out the range. But I did, I think, find enough of a range to make a decent case. And wh- how it's so complicated. And it's not simple to say, yes, we can, no, we can, yes, we should, or no, we shouldn't. Whoever reduces it that simple. Is I mean, it makes for really good op-eds, but it's really bad halacha and really bad teaching. Right? Let's not forget, you know, in addition to delaying justice, teaching Torah Shalok Halacha is in the same category. So keep that in mind too. All right. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, that so far, I'm dealing with slavery as it existed in America. Yeah. But who else is responsible for reparations? For example. Uh, Europeans didn't go into the jungle. And yeah, but we don't control Europe, or at least not yet. Um, <laughs> that's up to them. You know, we don't argue Europe, meaning they can deal with it themselves. You know, Germany paid reparations. I don't think all of Europe paid reparations. Did Poland pay reparations? I honestly have no idea, right? And yet, it's not like the Polish people were that great to the Jews. They're, my grandfather, you know, when he pa- passed away, the one who passed away uh, before Pesach, he held a great deal of enmity towards the Polish people because of what he personally experienced, uh, more than Germans, mind you. I don't know. You know, that that's a whole other question there. So at any rate, hope this was in you know, informative, enjoyable and whatnot, and have a wonderful week. <laughs>